back to the podcast, episode 11 of the Career Pipeline. I just got back from Utah, went out there and did Jack Carr's podcast. I actually like Jack, he's a really nice guy, really humble, down to earth, big history buff. Uh, we had some great conversations, even before the camera started rolling. I, I landed in Utah in January and I got a two-wheel drive because nobody told me Jack Carr lives on top of a mountain. And on the way up this mountain, I was skidding all over the place, but I made it. And then I went in and sat down for a four-hour podcast, and I come out, and there's like three feet of snow. So uh, it was quite the challenge getting back down off the hill, I can tell you. But it was it was actually fun talking to him. And I, I never listened to my podcasts because I was there. I know what I said. And uh, my wife edits, edits it and throws it on there. And But she was not there for the Jack Carr one. So we were driving somewhere the other day, and she wanted to play it in the car. And I was like, oh, my God, I talk a lot. And I just not did not stop talking straight for four hours. It was I was like, oh my god, I never shut up once. And I think doing these podcasts that I've been doing here, where I take portions of my career and chop it into one-hour blocks, it's all kind of fresh in my mind. And I've, you know, the, the stories are kind of still rattling around there in my brain, and uh, I don't have to search for things and 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 skip over things. And hey, check it out if you haven't. It's uh, it's quite the ride. God bless caffeine. All right. So when I when I finished up last time, I just became a team sergeant in special forces, master sergeant, and a master sergeant. It, it, a team sergeant in special forces is like the best job, job in the army, bar none. It's freaking great. Now some guys might not agree with me, but my experience was fantastic. When I left sniper school as a master sergeant and having done three, I wanted to do sniper stuff. And the SIF companies, the commanders in the Karimis Force companies, are the only ones who actually have dedicated snipers. Everybody else, it's an additional skill. So I wanted to go back to the SIF companies. And it's funny because I went and I talked to, I had an interview for it because that's a very sought after job. And I went to the battalion CSM to do an interview and I walked in. And he said, hey, Master Owens, great, you know, thanks for coming by. And uh, I went in and sat down and I started talking. He's like, you don't need to talk. Um, Jason, I'm not going to say his last name, was on my team. And he was also on this command sergeant major's team. And he said, if Jason recommends you, it's good enough for me. Job's yours. Boom. Done. So being a team sergeant in the SIF company, generally how it happens, guys will do a couple of years on, a, on an ODA. And then when they think they're coming up on SWIC to be an instructor, they'll go to Sephardic and jump over to the SIF company, which restarts your clock. At least it did back then. So now you're restarting even another two years. And then when they, they'll go to be an assaulter for two years. And then when their two years is coming up and they think they're going to get hit with SWIC, they'll jump over to sniper teams and get two more years. And it's pretty slick. So what that means is the guys on the snipes in the SIF company, at least the way third group was, are the most senior guys in the group basically so there there's guys i've talked to who are team sergeants and they had e5s who were 18 x-rays on their team and, and and everybody in my team was an e7 a sergeant first class which would be a platoon sergeant in the infantry everybody was sephardic qualified so the, the sniper qualified free fall qualified half the guys were free fall jump masters they all had multiple combat tours so it was freaking easy, man. I didn't have to steer them. I just had to get out of their way and try to keep up with them, basically. And they, they were a fantastic group of guys. Now, the, the flip side of that is being a team sergeant for a bunch of senior, senior, senior guys, you got to be on your game because them boys will call you out and you, you got to herd them boys and keep them under control. But luckily, I had some great guys and we broke it into cells within the, the ODA because that's how the SIFs run. I had great cell leaders 
um, and they're friends to this day, good friends. Stevie was actually one of my cell leaders. He teaches made here for me. Terry was another cell leader. He um, he just wrapped up running sniper school for three years. He's a competitive shooter. Me and him were, were snipers. He was my 18th Bravo. We, we, we shot competitions together. We won the international sniper comp together, like I said last time. We also shot the USASOC sniper competition, which is the, the United States Army Special Operations Command. It's run by Range 37 once a year, and it's a brutally hard course. I don't think I talked about this last time, probably because I didn't win, but me and Terry, it was supposed to be Stevie and Terry shooting that. Actually, it was supposed to be Stevie and Terry shooting the international, and Stevie blew out his knee, and I had to step in at the last minute. But me and Terry shot the or the USASOC sniper comp. We were on our game. We were winning comps all over the place. Mostly does a Terry shooting ability, but we went into that comp pretty confident. But you make one mistake in a competition like that, and it will crush you. And we did. We did the first event, and it was like a run and a gun event, range 37, we won it. Then we went out to the second one, which is a stalking event. And a stalking event is camouflaging steel, but moving tactically into a final firing position, taking a shot. And I taught this, and I was very good at it. They had multiple spotters out looking for you. And the problem is that, that the ghillie suit is not a cloak of invisibility, invisibility, right? It is nerd out there, Harry Potter. You can move in and camouflage, but at a certain point, you have to break cover to try and find the observation point to identify it. And we broke cover and the guy just happened to be looking that way. Boom, busted, lost 100 points. So after the first event, we were in the lead. And after the second event, we were at the bottom. And we had to work our way back up, fighting all the way, grabbing as many points as we could to make up for those 100 points, which is difficult. And we won a bunch of the events at that. We did really, really well. And we scratched our way all the way up to second. And had there been another event, we would have probably took it. Like the guys in f who first group won it that year, and they come up to us at the banquet, they were like, we were watching you guys climb every day, and we were really sweating it. And they beat us by like 30 points, and we lost 100 points on the stock. But that's the way it is. You can't afford to make a mistake, um, or you pay dearly for it. But it would have been sweet to win the international and the USA Cup, but no, not to be, wasn't to be. So I had a really, really talented team of really capable guys. And the, the thing is too, like, you know, team sergeants mostly are the most, always are the senior guy and they run a lot of the training and stuff like that. I didn't even have to run the training. My cell leaders ran the training. All Safari qualified, all sniper qualified, all experienced guys. Um, like I said, I just had to get out of the way. So it was really, really easy. Um, we deployed, we went to CENTCOM AO and ran some training for a bunch of, I, I think I can say it, we, we, were, we went to UAE and we, we went to Jordan first for a month and did a bunch of training there. I talked about this on Jack Carr. We infilled into a, an OP on a training exercise in Jordan. We free falled in and they said, Jordanian and Special Ops are going to go with you. And I was like, no, they're not. They're not jumping with me, not in the air. I don't know who they are. So they ended up ground infilling them and we jumped in. We got on razors. We set up an OP on a, I took the two razors up to an overwatch position up on a mountain overwatching a village and Stevie I think was the team yeah he was the cell leader and his cell infiltrated into the village and set up an urban OP in the village because the uh, the plan and the operation called for that and we watched this target for a couple of days before the assault force came in and hit it and it was a training exercise but the Jordanians that came with me took no food they took a big bag of candy and that's all they had and they ate every piece of chow we had um, at one point I, I lost my sunglasses because, as you imagine, it's hot and it's sunny. And uh, I looked around, the guy was wearing them, <laughs> and I took them back off him. The, one of the guys that was in the Urban OP with Stevie, uh, Urban OPs are, 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 
you know, you can get great, you can get close to the target, you're pretty comfortable usually, but you're very vulnerable and you're generally closer, you know, so, so noise is a huge factor for them. But the Jordanian that was with Stevie had night terrors, so he'd wake up screaming in the middle of the night on an urban OP. At one point, I was watching a car drive up, stop outside their OP, and a guy got out with a, a big tray of chai, right, tea, and walked into the OP, and I get Stevie on the radio, I'm like, what the hell is going on? One of the Jordanians with him texted his buddy who was in a, a military base close by, and he brought him out tea in the middle of the OP, like just amateur BS. Now, Jordan has some really good special ops units, and I got this Sieg behind the curtain with some of those stuff, that stuff, but not these guys. These guys were terrible. We spent some time in Kasadic, and you can look it up on uh, Google Earth. It's, it's, it stands for King Abdul Special Operations Training Center. And it, it's not a secret base or anything, but it's in a big kind of valley. And if you look at it up on Google, if you put it on Google Earth, you can go over it and you can zoom in. There's aircraft there for, for training. There's ranges, there's shoot houses, there's awesome facilities. And we, we did a hit there. It was supposed to be an embassy and the assault force was coming in and the snipe set up an OP and put, put uh, eyes on it. And we took shots from up on the mountain, like, I think one was like four something and one was like six something. But we did coordinate shoot on targets with live fire while the assault force. And it was really good training. They had a, a competition there called Eager Lion when we were there too. We, we weren't part of that. but And then we went into UAE and we were part of a task force with SEALs to go. And, and we were a, a 911 force. It was actually considered a combat tour and we got combat paid. No, we didn't do any combat, but... We were there for contingency operations in that area and something very specific that I'm not going to talk about. But, uh, you know, while you're there, you might as well work. So we trained our ass off. Uh, I sent a cell into Kuwait to train Kuwaiti special operations. I sent a cell into Oman to train Kuwaiti Oman SAS. And then me and my captain toured and, and we, we bounced into Kuwait, um, helped out a little bit with training. And then we bounced into Oman. We taught a couple of classes to the Oman FCS officer corps, super professional, obviously has that British Army connection. We were in, they were in this big kind of banquet room or some big chandelier, all sitting up straight behind our desks in, in class B uniform, um, so dress uniform without the tie and the jacket, super attentive. We taught, I, we taught a leadership class to them, we taught mission planning. And we taught, I taught VBSS, which is uh, vehicle board search and seizure. It's retaken ships because they were afraid of uh, Somali piracy. And uh, um, I just dug into my freaking hard drive of archive classes and pulled one together. I'd done some ship stuff in Ireland, so luckily enough. Uh, but we, we did a lot of training. We did a lot of free fall. We did a lot of low vis kind of tagging, tracking, locating in downtown Abu Dhabi. Pretty interesting tour, not a combat tour, but some good, uh, some good training done. The company commander in, in the SIF company at the time was a disaster. He was the worst officer I've ever served with in two armies, and I think he's been fired since. But he was a complete dirtbag, and he was an alcoholic, and he was terrible, and I did not get along with him at all. Um, he hated me, and and the, the feeling was mutual. I usually get along with people. I just couldn't stand this guy. He was a joke. My team leader, who is still in SF now, and I can't, I don't know what rank he is, but he was a rock star, man. He'd come from Ranger Battalion, and very young-looking guy, but we were his first ODA, and me and him sat down, and I'm like, you know, let, let's let's hash some stuff out. And the thing is, like, I, I've always gotten along with junior officers because there's a very distinct 
delineation of, of who does what. And as long as you have that conversation, he basically dealt with the company commander and above, and I dealt with the team. And I ran the team. We didn't have a warrant officer, and he was good with that. And I, I brought him into every decision. There was mutual respect there, and it worked. It just worked. It's when it becomes an ego thing, and you're fighting over stuff, and you're undermining each other and all that. It's just, it, it, it's horrible. Now, it, it worked because Brian was Brian, and I was me, and we made it work. Um, had it been another team leader who fought me on everything, it would have been bad or wanted to be the team sergeant, it would have been bad. And, you know, SF has a warrant officer course where you can become, if you're an E7 or whatever, you can become a warrant officer in SF. It's quite easy. And, and my warrant in 05 was encouraging me to do it because but I'd actually thought about it. I was going to, to go warrant, but I came up on SWIC orders. And when you come up with SWIC orders, there's nothing you can do to get out of it. I, I procrastinated too long. But I've heard guys who are E8 saying, I'm going to go warrant and, and hopefully it's a weak team sergeant so I can run the team. And that's the wrong attitude. It's not your job. It's not your job to run the team. But but luckily, I had good team leaders and, uh, you know, we, we worked well together. I did not have a bad experience, I'm trying to think. Pretty good, pretty good officers in SF as at the junior level. So... We wrapped up that deployment, came back, uh, and I'm thinking, what am I going to do now? Because if you're being groomed to be a sergeant major in SF, it's not absolutely mandatory, but if you, if they give you a first sergeant job, it means they're grooming you to be a sergeant major. Because you think about, there, there's 72 ODAs in SF command, so they're all losing team sergeants every year. Not all of them, but there's a lot of E8s coming out of that team sergeant job. And then where you go? And if you become a first sergeant, it means they have, they want to groom you to be a sergeant major. So when I came, was coming out of that job, my the commandant, who was Mark Eckert, who became the USOC CSM, the commandant, he's like, I want to, I want you to be a first sergeant. I want, and and I tried to get a third year as a team sergeant, and the battalion CSM wouldn't give it to me. He's like, you need to keep moving up. I want you to be a first sergeant. All right. So I'm not Mark Eckert, the command CSM. So I went and interviewed Mark Eckert, who was the commandant of the NCO Academy, to do a job to run the Warrior Leader course, which when I went through it, it was called the Primary Leadership Development Course. It's now called BLC, Basic Leader Course. But the Warrior Leader Course at the time, it was an Army POI, so Army Program of Instruction, Army classes that had to be done, but it was first soft. It was the RSOF Warrior Leader Course. And it was at Camp McCall, which is like 20 minutes from where I live. And it was the first sergeant running that training. So I went and interviewed Mark Eckert, and he interviewed like 10 or 14 people, I think. And I basically said, look, to me, it's what appealed to me about that job is because if you can influence young soldiers early, you'll set their career up on a, on a trajectory that, you know, guarantees success. It's, almost, it's like when you're an infantry squad leader, you'd see young soldiers come in. If they got a shitty squad leader, they get out of the army after three years. They got a good squad leader, held them accountable and trained them and all that. They generally re-enlist and become a good soldier. That's just the way it is. So I thought that that um, if I can influence these young soldiers very early on in their career, um, I'll put them on a good trajectory and I have the experience and that probably the, the, the temperament and the mindset uh, and the maturity to run that school very, very well. And I had 14 Green Beret instructors, E7s, working for me. And sometimes those young instructors can get a little out of control. So I interviewed with Mark Eckert. He gave me the job. And I went even before, because I, I wasn't supposed to go for a couple of months. And my team sergeant time was up. 
And I'm not, I'm an E8. I'm not coming into work every day just to sit around. And I don't want to be in the new Team Sergeant's way. So I just went home and, and uh, <laughs> I, I probably shouldn't even say this, but I lost my mind a little bit when I went home because I had like three months off. And I started chopping down trees around my house. And one tree fell and almost took my my shed. <laughs> my wife was like, you need to go back to work. And I built a, I built a, a zip line in the back of my yard. And I put my kids on it and it was a death trap, man. It, it friggin' was bad. But uh, I have a video of that that I'll, I'll, I'll probably bring to my grave. But it was, I, I, I need to be busy. So I actually went out and shadowed a class before I was even assigned. So I talked to the first time that was out there. And I went out and I just watched the whole class. It's a 27-day or 25-day POI, right? It's a 25-day class. Now, it was... So when young soldiers come into the, mil, into the military as 18 x-rays, straight off the street, they come in to do basic training, advanced training, airborne school, and then they come to Fort Bragg and they do special operations preparation course, which is a couple of weeks of PT and land nav to get them ready. Then they go to selection. And if they pass selection, they come straight to me. And they do this warrior leader course because it's a requirement in the army before you can pin on E5. And there's no E4s in special forces. You have to be an NCO. So they would come to me and they would do this 25-day POI class. Now, a lot of it was mandatory army classes. But the way the army do it is you just go in and home every day. So you go in 9 to 5, Monday to Friday, and you do the class. Now, with us, you went out to Camp McCall. We took your phone and you got locked down in a gated camp for 25 days so I had a whole lot more time with them uh, to train them on so much more than what the army wanted me to do or required me to do and then you can put a, a special forces spin on a lot of the training now when I shadowed that class that was on previous to me there was a lot of things I saw that I didn't like so then when I got assigned there I actually shadowed another class because it's a requirement with the other first sergeant and it reaffirmed the things I did not like, but I was like, maybe I'm wrong. Let me, let me figure it out. And then when I actually took over, I sat all the instructors down and I said, okay, there's a couple of things that I don't understand why we're doing them. If you can explain to me why we're doing these things, we'll keep them. If not, they're gone, right? Why are, I, 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 there's a whole list of them, but uh, why are we making the students run everywhere, right? They, they were not allowed to walk. They had to run everywhere in two-man teams. And they were like, well, they run everywhere in selection. Okay, this is not selection. They've already passed selection. Why are they running everywhere? But nobody could give me a good answer. I'm like, okay, that's gone. They can walk. I'll keep them in two-man teams because they're very junior and I don't want them going where they're not supposed to be going. I got that. Uh, fire guard. Why are we pulling fire guard? Fire guard is something that was introduced in the army and kind of became part of its culture when we had potbelly stoves and wooden huts. And if everybody was asleep, you died. Basically, the whole place burned to the ground. So fire guard was very necessary. So what we were doing is we had, I had 12 classrooms of 18 students per class. It's a big class. All 12 classrooms had to have somebody awake and sitting up on a chair all, all night long. And what it was doing was it was ruining their sleep cycle. Because if I have to get up, my shift's from 3 to 4. Then the person in front of me is going to wake me up at 2.45. So I go across to a place that was 200 meters away, and take a piss, come back. So I'm actually on guard at 3 and off at 
you know, four, and it probably might take me 20, 30 minutes to get back to sleep. I've just destroyed that person's sleep cycle. For what? Why? Tell me why. And, and you get this, well, this is always the way it's been done, and I hate that answer. If you can explain to me why we're doing something, I'll keep it. But if I don't understand, there's no point, we're doing it. So nobody, they were like, they need to learn how to pull guard. Okay, I agree with that, but they can learn somewhere else. We're, we're, we're putting out a lot of knowledge on this course, and I see people falling asleep in class. Good sleep, good food, good learning environment, and I just don't get it. So nobody could explain to me why we were doing it, so I did away with it. I was like, no more fire guard. When I was in uh, the first sergeant's office, could see out everything, and I saw guys doing log PT on, when I was shadowing for like three freaking hours. And I'm like, why are we doing this? And it was because of a small infraction. And I was like, okay. And you get these, you get these young special forces instructors who hold students sometimes to a standard they were never held to or to a standard they probably couldn't uphold themselves. So I was like, okay, seems a little harsh for me. I'll leave it alone for now. And then the next class, they just went, oh, they, they went nuts over something stupid. And I was like, okay, now I'm taking away your ability to mass punish people because I, I think you're doing it for the wrong reasons. And of course, they're all complaining. I don't care. I know more than you. I have more experience than you. What else was there? Oh, like they would give people, if you get kicked, this is what's called an NCOES school. And there's only a couple in the army. It's an it's non-commissioned officer education course, whatever. It's, it's professional development for non-commissioned officers. So you have PLDC or WLC or BLC. Then you have, I went to BNOC, which is basic non-commissioned, which is now SLC, whatever it is. So you have BLC, SLC, you have like three or four in your whole career. If you get kicked out of one of them, your career's over. You're done. So it's not something to be taken lightly. So what they would do is they'd, they'd give people counseling statements or smoke them, smoke them as push-ups, sit-ups, all that for slice and fractions. And I was watching one time and <laughs> there was a rule, this, this blew me away, that your camelback had to be full at all times. Now, I get having your camelback full for first formation, but what was happening is students wouldn't drink water because they didn't want to get a counseling statement for having their, not having their camelback full. That's the dumbest shit I've ever seen. And I'm like, okay, that's gone. Your camelback will be full for first formation. After that, drink your water. Stop heat casualties, right? It gets pretty hot in the summer in North Carolina. What else was there? There was a ton of other stuff that were just like, didn't make any sense to me whatsoever. And I was like, okay, that's gone, and that's gone, and that's gone, and that's gone. I, and then there was other things. And I'm, I'm, people think special ops, you can, you can wear whatever you want, you can grow a beard, you can grow long hair. You can't do any of that. You're in the Army. There's a time and place when you can get relaxed grooming standards downrange if it's necessary. Me, I hate it anyway, but it's only, in Afghanistan it happened a lot because you build rapport because it's a very beardy culture, right? It's kind of a, a, the mark of a man <clears throat> in the... Sometimes in Iraq, guys had relaxed room centers because they were downtown and you wanted to blend a little. I get that. Now, if you if you have a beard and a man dress on, but you got freaking 5'11 tactical boots on, you're probably not doing yourself any good. So, but in the army, you're held to standards. So when I shadowed a class, students would show up the first day and we'd do a layout and the instructors would be in PTs or civilian clothes. And I was like, that's not going to happen anymore. You'll be in uniform and you look like a freaking Green Beret instructor. This is the first time these students really met a Green Beret. And, and we, I wanted them to walk away going, even at the end of the Q course, that those instructors were the most professional instructors in the whole Q course, right? Because they come in, they go to SOP C, they have some guys there, 
and they go to selection. Selection just hurting cats and moving people around. Not really teaching that much, but and then the student company. So this WLC Warrior League was the first time they really got exposed to a Greberet instructor. So I made them all wear a uniform, especially on day one when when they pull up and the bus pulls up. Those guys are there in uniform with your beret on, super professional. No more cussing, no more swearing, no more smoking people unnecessarily. Train coach mentor. That's your job. Even the layout we did differently. We 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 just did it more professionally because I, I'd seen it done. I wasn't happy with the way it was being done. And that's that's not change for change's sake. That's just bringing. I, to me, it was raising the level of professionalism. They came to me one day. An instructor came to me one day and said said we need to kick this guy out. And I'm like, why? Well, he was missing three items on the layout yesterday, and. Today he has them, and what we think happened is, I think we he, we think he got a phone. We take their phones from them, but there's pay phones there. We think he got a phone, and he called his buddy, and his buddy came and threw the, threw the items over the fence. I was like, good for him. That's the guy I want. I want. I, I am not counseling him for that. Good for him. He didn't get caught. And they'd be mad, but I don't care. It's not about you. It's about the students. And then, because you, you can get through the Army stuff pretty easily, you can add stuff and add special ops stuff. Did a lot of patrolling, a lot of small unit tactics. Land nav was not a test when I got there because it was a requirement for WLC, but we got a waiver because all these 18 x-rays had passed land nav in selection. Now, after I was there for a couple of classes, they integrated civil affairs and psyops into the whole thing. And civil affairs and psyops got pulled into underneath the special operations umbrella. And so they had... So now I had young Green Beret candidates, civil affairs and PSYOPs all in the one class. Now, civil affairs and PSYOPs had females at the time and SF did not. So I, I, I was like, I'm not taking females until I have a female instructor. And they dug around, dug around. They got me two females. One was a civil affairs and she was awesome. She was, she's a sergeant major in, in civil affairs right now. And she was great. She'd been part of the cultural support teams. And, and she was really good. The other one was like S1 or something like that. And she was kind of a fish out of water. But I needed females there, man. I can't have these guys dealing with females without a female instructor. Um, because we all know men lose their mind around women. And I wanted to keep it really, really, really professional. So I started getting them in there as well. It's funny because I sat down with the leadership of civil affairs and psyops and there was a standard for a rucksack weight. There was a standard for push-ups and sit-ups and what we call the UBR, upper body round robin. And they were, civil affairs and psyops were concerned that it was too high. And I was like, listen to yourself. And these were sergeant majors, right? And I was like, listen to yourself. You're going to a school and you're trying to get me to lower the standard. I'd be embarrassed if I was doing that. I said, you should be pushing your soldiers to raise the standard, to get to the standard where they can pass. And it was just a different mindset. There's only certain things you can kick people out and fail people for. And I wasn't looking to fail anybody, but there, there's a commandant's list for the top you know, 10%. There's other things like that. And I, I just wanted to change the mindset a little bit and have you raise your standard. Okay, we do a 45 pound ruck, on the 12 mile or you do a 35 pound ride put the extra 10 pounds in there and suck it up it's not that big a deal and it it it, it really i'd never worked with civil affairs or sabs and it really gave me a view into their mindset when they sat down and asked me to lower the standard for their soldiers pretty sad one of the classes that we were required to teach was law of land warfare 
and uh, military justice. So we could teach it, it's all in the POI, but I would bring a lawyer out from JAG, from SWIC, and I would have him or her do the class. And they would talk through, you know, UCMJ, Uniform Code of Military Justice, Article 15s, military law. And then they talk about law of land warfare and it would veer into rules of engagement. And it's very, very, a lawyer is always going to be very, very down the line, right? So they would get up there and they'd say, okay, you can't do this, you can't do this, you can't do this, you can't shoot unarmed people, you can't shoot civilians, you can't shoot kids, all very black and white rules and, and absolutely right. But I always felt like it was a disservice to, and if you've been listening to this series, like I've been dealing with rules of engagement in Ireland, along the border of Northern Ireland, in Lebanon, in Somalia, in Iraq, in Afghanistan, and, I, you know, and, and here we are now teaching young soldiers these very black and white rules, and it, it didn't sit well with me. So I would let that lawyer do their thing, and when they left, I would say, look, everything that lawyer told you is absolutely right, but the world looks different through a set of night vision goggles on a roof in Baghdad in 2007 than it does from a lawyer's office. So let's break down these rules. Can't shoot unarmed people. I agree with that. We're not them. What is somebody running towards your blocking position during curfew in a place where there's suicide vests abundant, right? Is that a threat? Do you engage or do you let them run right up in your vehicle and detonate and kill five of your buddies, okay? Can't shoot kids. I agree with that too. We're not them. What is a 12, 14-year-old with an AK-47 shooting at you in a combat zone? Is that a kid or is that an enemy soldier? I, I, I just used to go down that, like a cell phone. Somebody on the roof with a cell phone during a firefight directing fire. Is that a threat or is it not a threat? These very black and white rules don't apply to war. War is gray and war with special operations is very gray. So I just wanted to take, to, to have those kids take a hard look at that stuff because you hesitate and you die a lot of times in combat, right? The other thing I talked to them about, and I talked about this and, and it's, it's all tied to my experiences, but the other thing I talked about was the op fund and dealing with the op fund. And I'm like, look, some of you guys will go to an ODA and you'll go to your team and you'll be put in charge of an op fund, tens of thousands of dollars. And you may or may not have your team sergeant come to you or your team leader and tell you to buy something that's illegal. And it's very difficult for, me, for a young soldier like that to turn their team's arm down. Very difficult, especially when you're trying to fit and you're trying to be part of the team. And um, I did it against my own better judgment. I'm not, I'm a very experienced guy. Cause, so I can imagine a kid who's 24, brand new to a team, and Team Sergeant says, come in, and you've had the training, you know what's legal and what's not legal. And uh, very hard to say no, right? But I, I reminded them like, when the music stops, you will be the one without a chair. You will be the one that goes to jail. And uh, in some cases, everybody else will throw you under the bus. They'll turn to you and say, what were you thinking? So I told him, look, if, if that happens, go to your team leader and say, are you telling me to do something illegal? And put them on the spot right there and don't freaking do it. Don't do it. Be very aware of the guy who wants to do the op fund. It's a horrible job. But when somebody volunteers for it, that's a huge red flag for me. That, that, so I, I really did try to guide these kids 
mentor them uh, and and get them ready for what was coming both on the Q course and in, in combat we did when I got there, one of the things I saw when I shadowed was we did peers at the end, right? Peer reviews are basically rank everybody in your squad of 18, top to bottom, right? Pros and cons. And, and it's an exercise in getting students to, to evaluate people and basically call people out, which is, it's missing in SF because a lot of times everybody gets above the standard. Everybody gets a freaking, he's a rock star, right? Well, we're not, everybody's not rock stars, right? Uh, it's, a, it's an exercise in getting them to do evaluations. And it's it's giving the cadre a look behind the curtain that we don't see. But at the end of a course, it's la- it's too late. I, there's nothing I can do if this comes up and says, this guy's this, 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 this. He's on the bus that day. So I implemented peers every Saturday. And I worked because I was, I, I have a tendency of jumping in both feet with everything I do, but I, I live close by. So the first arm before me and the one before him, basically they were not there most of the time. They would come in, close the door to their office and work on college uh, because you needed college to be a sergeant major. And I was like, oh, this would be great. I'll get my college done. And I never got it done because I, I couldn't do that. So I would work every sat the first Saturday of every class. And I would pull guard. We always had a guy there on night duty, and the other first sergeant never. I pull guard because it's easy to have that standard if you don't do it. I actually drew ammo. I do. I did all kinds of stuff. But my students were walking past one night. I was mopping the floor, and they looked at me like I was crazy. And I was like, "You never seen a first sergeant mop the floor?" And they're like, "No, first sergeant." <laughs> um, but I would do peers, and what I wanted from students was give me the top three performance in your squad. And why? And give me the bottom three. And why? And that first weekend, they don't know each other very well. So generally, the bottom three, the commons are very quiet, doesn't really talk much, kind of reserved guy. And I would take those kids in my office and I would counsel. Now, again, I have 12 or 13 squads. I would counsel them, but not in a, in a ass-chewing way. i just have a chat and I'd say, look, man, I would rather a quiet guy in my team than a loudmouth asshole that never shuts the hell up. I would. However, you're in a job and a career where you kind of got to be an outgoing guy and you got to get up there and be confident. And so I want you to try and come out of your box a little bit. Just step out of your comfort zone. Try to be. And I don't think ever, I was there for two years, I don't think I ever got those kids back on the peer list again after that. Because sometimes it just takes somebody to point things out to you that you're not aware of. And it's very hard to change your personality, right? But... These guys come, probably come in, whole new world, probably never been out of their hometown, very overwhelming, but it, it just they just needed somebody to step up. And then the guys should be on the top three. I'd be like, look, you're doing great things. Keep doing it. Bring these guys along and, and, and coach, train, mentor them, and, and here's what I want you to do. And i give them some guidance that way. And I would do that every Saturday, and I would go through the peers personally. And generally, you have your rock stars, you have your mediums, and then you have your couple of not so well performers so we we had this kid who fixed the peers one time like i'm an idiot like i haven't come up with better scams myself but before that he was on the class before and we did an end of course critique where you fill in all these things pros and cons of different things and i read them all but generally end of course critiques are not they're not real helpful because Students don't understand the logistics that go in. They don't understand that we are forced to teach certain classes because it's an army school, blah, 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 blah. There's a million things that go into it. I find it much more beneficial to pull the top two performers from each squad into the room with me and get their feedback 
on how the instructors did, anything unprofessional. But in that forum where they can speak freely and they're not writing stuff down, you get a whole lot more from them. And my whole goal was just to improve training. But this kid did his end of course critique. And this school is 22 days of training. If I took it now, I would learn stuff. And there's boring stuff in it, a uniform code of military justice, running counseling statements, NCOERs, uh, training plans, all that, right? But there's also PT and tactics, all kinds of stuff. If I took it now, I would learn stuff, right? But this kid was an ass. And he wrote on his end of course critique, this, this class was bullshit and I didn't learn anything. And I was like, okay, that's a bold statement. So I brought him into my office and I was like, so you're telling me in 25 days you didn't learn anything. And I thought he'd be like, well, you know, I did. But and he was like, no, for certain, I didn't learn anything. And I was like, okay. I said, I apologize that we did not help you. We did not train you. Here's what we're going to do. You can go home for the weekend. We have a new class starting on Monday. You'll come back out and you'll repeat the whole class. And his jaw dropped. He was stunned. So I brought him back out and he did the whole class again. Or not the whole class, because on one of the first or second peers, when I got to his squad, it was really obvious that, you know, you, you, they, have, they have seating, you know, it goes down one side across, it's like in a, in a, in a U-shape. And it was very obvious that the person sitting, person, you know, roster number six peered number seven high and number five low. And number seven peered eight high and, you know, six low. And they did it right. And it was very obvious, right? Like, I'm an idiot. Like, like I couldn't tell right away when I... Uh, so they fixed the peers. They got together and they fixed. So nobody was really high and nobody was really low and everybody's mediocre. And it just doesn't work that way. So... I, uh, when they were back in their in their thing, I walked in with with eighteen sworn statements, and I said, "You've had classes on sworn statements and military justice. Go ahead and lie to me on this sworn statement, and I will give you a, uh, an Article Fifteen. I'll destroy your career." And I hand them all out, and they all rat this guy out. Oh, this guy said it was the best way to do it. Blah 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 blah. So I take him in, and I counsel him, and I kick him out of the course. And he's gone. And it, it, like, I didn't kick many people out, but I kicked him out. He was just an asshole who just didn't get it. What an idiot. It's a simple class. Just do what you're told. Learn as much as you can. I've been to stupid schools. I've been to great schools. I've been to stupid schools, but I always learn something. Always. And you apply yourself. It's funny, Zach Hughes, who's uh, on Instagram, he, he was one of my students. And he came back and, and, and podcasted with me. And, and, uh, I, I had a, a positive impact on him. There's another guy. I'm going to podcast uh, CSM, Lee Strong, who's the SWIX, Command Sergeant Major. Me and him were team sergeants together, and he was telling me a while ago that he had a kid on in his company who they were just bullshitting one day, and, and this kid had no idea that Lee knew me, and he was like, yeah, the best the best, uh, the best, best leader we had in, in the whole Q course was this first sergeant. I can't remember his name, he's an Irish guy. <laughs> and uh, Lee Strong was like, Kevin Owens? He's like, yeah. He's like, yeah, I know him. So that makes me feel good. More than any NCOER, any award, any freaking rank or anything, to be able to have an impact on young soldiers early on in their career is a massive, huge thing for me. I used to do the 12-mile ruck with them, and I do the 5-mile the run with them, and I was in my mid-40s. And they had, to, they had to run 5 miles in 40 minutes, and they weren't allowed to have watches. So I would get up there, and I'd say, look, I'm going to come in at 39 minutes. If you're ahead of me, you're good. 
And then I'd just haul ass. And I'd come in in like 35 minutes. I'd be moving. And they'd be dying trying to keep up with me. Same with the 12-mile road march. I'd say, I'm just going to come in under time. And you had three hours to run to go 12. I'd run the whole thing and come in at like, you know, 220. And people would be killing themselves. trying. And it's just mindset. I wasn't in as good a shape as them. It's just mindset. I carried the same weight. But it was just mindset. I was, I was, you know, but it's good for, to lead from the front like that and show those guys what the standard is. The, and then when we were down in the field, uh, we did a lot of small unit tactics. We did ambushes and raids and and uh, trying to get them some training before they go to the Q course for the SF kids. And then for the PSYOPs and civil affairs, this is the only small unit tactics you're going to get. So try to make you learn as much as possible when you're there. I... I as all modern leaders did, I, I lived in fear of like my guys getting a sexual assault or sexual harassment or hostile work environment, some BS like that, because we had females. And the female instructors we came in were really good and, and you know, they became part of the team and, and, and then I was in my office one time and guys were talking about the, and, and the two girls were out there and they were talking about stuff over the weekend that really was crossing the line and what happens is when you have males and females working together and I like working with females but the line of what becomes acceptable gets pushed and pushed and pushed right and for the women they're trying to fit in trying to be part of the team and for the guys that they, they, they push the line and push the line and push the line until it gets way too much so I remember one time I was listening from my office and then when the when the girls when the women left I went out and I said guys look you gotta you gotta pull it in because let's just say I give one of them a bad NCOER then they're gonna say it was it was a hostile work environment they couldn't concentrate and everybody would get burned everybody this is the Obama administration everybody would get burned whether it's true or not right and I'm not saying they, they didn't do that and I'm not saying they would always but for women who don't understand why men are so cautious around them this is why like I would counsel the female students and I'd always have my door open and a female instructor in the room with me all times right you have to cover yourself and it, it, it's sad in that case, in that way, but that's just the world we live in. And I found out firsthand later on how toxic a work environment can be with people who are just looking for money. And I'll talk about that later on. I, I found working at the Warrior Leader course. Oh, in the middle of this, I, I actually re-enlisted in the army and I, I probably shouldn't have, but I re-enlisted and I was still on track to be a sergeant major. But because I didn't close my door, dereliction of duty, just not on work on college, like everybody else, I couldn't do that. I did one college class and I freaking hated it. And I was like, I'm not doing this. I just made the decision. I, I don't care about being a sergeant major. I'm just going to retire as an E8. I don't care. So I did re-enlist. There, there was a program where you got a bonus if you re-enlisted for six years at 19. That's a long time. And it's a long time because your team time is over. So it's all staff work. And it's not a great idea. It doesn't matter how much the bonus is. And that was a lot of money. Now, in order to get that money tax-free, I had to go into a combat zone. So I had to go to Iraq for three months, um, which I was fine with. So I took off the diamond. I took off the first sergeant rank, put on master sergeant rank, and I went to uh, Afghanistan. And I worked in the uh, the operations center, the joint operations center. And it's the place you've probably seen on TV with all the big screen TVs, the stair steps. Uh, and all the analysts and all the people sitting around watching drone strikes and watching battles unfold. And I was uh, 12 on, 12 off shifts in uh, Camp Sather in Afghanistan. And I was the, the, I was the operations sergeant for that facility. 
and my job was I just ran that that whole thing. Now there was a sergeant major, there was a couple of officers there, uh, the battalion commander would come in or the group commander would come in every now and again, and, and uh, uh, but I watched dozens and dozens of drone strikes and battles unfold from the air. And I, I will tell you, we became very, very, very good at drone strikes, like mastered it. And the rules of engagement in Afghanistan had flip-flopped and flip-flopped for a long time, but it had settled actually in a pretty decent place. And I watched a lot of drone strikes. Now, you you have to question the, the, the wisdom of shooting a $100,000 missile at a guy in a motorcycle, but the intel was always good. There was We would follow them for a long... There was certain criteria that had to be met, which I'm not going to get into to TTPs, but... I remember one where we were following guys through multiple sources and there was four of them and they walked up into a, into a, into the wood line and I came on just as they'd been following them and they were in the wood line. They could see heat signatures and uh, they got clear to engage and they engaged into the wood line and it turned out there was multiple teams, Taliban units meeting in that wood line and I was there after the strike and I was on for 12 hours so I watched all the bodies being taken out and it turned out that it was we thought we were shooting at four guys we were shooting at like 16 uh, high ranking Taliban you know the the rules became you you, you it, it became it settled in a very good place I thought and it became really good the, the, a lot of missions with commandos and SF teams on the ground and I, I remember watching one and massive gunfight and the medevac birds coming in, not special operations, just medevac birds, and coming in under withering gunfire to land in a hot LZ and pick up casualties. And I mean, that takes some balls, man. I, I don't think those guys get enough credit that I was looking at that going, oh my God, they're actually gonna land. It was like some shit from Vietnam. I was also on the awards panel for awards for Afghanistan. Now, I, I'll get talk about awards later on, but Obviously, giving people awards and decorations and medals and all that is a time-honored tradition in the military, and it's been proven. But it's so abused now at this point that it is absolutely ridiculous. I don't know if I talked about this before, but there was a guy on my team in Afghanistan in '04. And we were in a lot of gunfights, living austere. And at the end, he got an ARCOM, an Army Commendation Medal. I got a, a Bronze Star because I was an E7 and he was an E6, and we did the same job. And, and just to, to equate that, I was at the national training, or I was at NCO school, and I, there was a guy there who'd gotten a, an ARCOM, the same award for moving a turtle off the road in NTC, okay? Very abused system, and it, it all depends on who freaking writes it, and how it's written, and what unit they're in. And I, So I'm going through, and as part, I'm sitting there 12 hours on, 12 hours off for months, and um, there's stuff going on, but it doesn't need my attention right now. So I'm going through all these awards. And I was part of, like, there might have been 10 senior NCOs and officers that would, these awards would filter through their computer. And you go in and you vote upgrade, downgrade, or approve, right? And I'd read the citations. And to me, I didn't even read the rank. I don't care. But if you were out with an ODA on target, you're an EOD kid, you're a driver, medic, whatever you are, if you're out there, with the commandos, that's immediate Bronze Star, right? V device, whatever, depending on the citation. If you never left a wire, then to me, that's not a, a, a valorous. And a lot of awards would be facilitated this or coordinated this. Well, you didn't do any of those things. You just facilitated them. So no, downgrade. And I remember getting, I'd get some in for officers and 
there'd be the group commander would write on it or the battalion commander would write on it. This guy did a great job. Do not downgrade. That was a guarantee that I would downgrade it. If you write do not downgrade, I'm downgrading it. I I, I don't. Awards are, are such a weird thing. I remember. And you know the American Army, man. You have awards like up over your shoulder. I remember being in the Ranger Wing in Ireland and we were at this all-army shooting competition and they sent a colonel or something from the embassy and he came in class A's and of course he has a massive chest full of medals and somebody said that's a corporal in the American army I thought that was really funny but I'll, I'll talk about awards later on but I was on that awards panel where I I, I got to downgrade a lot of awards or uh, upgrade as required and it's not just me right it goes through this panel of like 10 people or whatever and, and it, it all balances out in the end but it's a good way to do it because you get different views on it it's funny, when I left the army after 24 years, my commander put me in for a legion of merit, which I was like, don't put me in for a award. I don't want any more awards. Don't, I don't care. And he was like, I'm doing it anyway. And he put me in for a legion of merit. Some officer who'd never even met me downgraded it to a meritorious service. I don't care. But so I did a couple of months in Afghanistan, came back, came back to my first sergeant job and then finish out that job there two years hopefully had an impact on some young soldiers who uh, became Green Berets and, and did great things for their country downrange. There was one of my instructors actually went back to 10th group and got killed. Well, Lindsay, he, he got killed in Afghanistan later on and that was a, that was a pretty shocking thing because he was one of my 14 Green Beret instructors. But it was good to be able to impact young soldiers early on in their career and kind of showed them what it right looks like and you know train coach mentored them and give them some leadership tips and give them the real honest truth about what they're getting into and uh, I, I left there feeling good about what I'd done and what I'd changed and what I'd implemented and then of course the next guy comes and he does whatever he thinks is right so I don't know what's still there or, or gone at this point so then I'm at a dilemma again, and I'm like, all right, what am I going to do now? Don't want to be a sergeant major. Don't, I, the, the job itself didn't appeal to me, didn't have a college degree, and really didn't want to go to the, so there's two ways now for, for when you go to sergeant major academy, SF have their own in Tampa, which is a couple of months long. The army one is like a year long, and it is in, uh, where is it? It's somewhere over in like Arizona or something like that, but it's a year long. It's funny because when I was the first sergeant at the NCO Academy in, in, in Camp McCall, a couple of sergeant majors, senior, senior sergeants major, came by from the Army NCO Academy. And they were talking about, at, at the time, I think the course I ran was 23 days. They were talking about reducing it down to seven days or, or 10 days or something. And I was like, let me get this straight. <laughs> the deputy commandant was there and he did not, like he was a very yes man. But I said, let me get this straight, sergeant major. A young soldier who comes into the army and needs leadership training gets like 10 days. A sergeant major who's been in the army for 20, 25 years, who's basically been a leader for most of that time, goes to school for a year. I said, it should be the other way around. What? Where does that make sense? And they were shocked that I would dare talk to them like that. Freaking crap. I'm like, this is ridiculous. It's a stupid check the box. And you go to the Sergeant Major Academy for a year. You, it doesn't take, you do about three months work, but it's it spread, they do their college, they go down there, they PCS their whole family down there. How much does that cost the taxpayer? It's just ridiculous. Thank God SF started their own and were able to go to, to Tampa for a couple of months. 
I, I did not want to go to Tampa. I didn't want to go to, I, I just, just like, I was done. I was like, screw it. I'm, I'm. So I was looking about where to go. And I knew the Sergeant Major at the, uh, at Range 37. And he was like, look, the job of running sniper school is going to come up again in about six months. But I could pull you over now and you could be the operations sergeant. And then when that job opens, you can go over there. And it was hugely appealing to me go back and run the Special Forces Sniper course. I would have loved it. However, it's a year, maybe two, and I just re-enlisted for like six years. And I'm like, then what am I going to do? So the job as the weapons guy in the Force Modernization Office also was opening up. And I I, I kind of muddled it. I called Todd Hodnett, actually, and I, I, you know, Todd's a really good friend of mine. And Todd said, look, if you go to sniper school, you can affect a small amount of people in the force. If you go to force mod, you can affect the whole regiment and SOCOM and be for 20, 30 years and beyond because you need the right guy in there and you can, you can move mountains in that job if you're the right guy and the right personality and that's where I think you should go. So that's where I went. I went to the force modernization office for special forces and I went there to work what's called target engagement. There's eight commodity areas in this shop. There's target engagement, which deals with guns, bullets, optics, suppressors, uh, machine guns, everything. Uh, night vision goggles, lasers, all that stuff. That's target engagement. Mobility deals with vehicles, even non-standard vehicles, up-armored non-standard vehicles, GMVs, Sprinter, all kinds of vehicles. Um, so target engagement, mobility, soldier systems deals with uniforms, body armor, kit, anything kit related, rucksacks, all that kind of stuff. Helmets is soldier systems. There's a CRIF element there to work for it, for the CRIFs, the, the Crisis Response Force, the SIFs. So target engagement, mobility, soldier systems, CRIF, intel systems, tracking devices, listening devices, all kinds of stuff like that. Robotics, drones, counter drone, aerial drones underwater, all kinds of stuff. Uh, PSYOPs had a commodity there. And communications, which is a freaking nightmare. Very expensive commodity. So there's eight commodities there. But I just went there to be the weapons guy, to be the target engagement guy for weapons, guns, bullets, optics, all that stuff, because that was my passion. And there was a lot of stuff I wanted to fix. Now, I, I end up becoming the NCIC, but... Initially, when I went there, I just went there to target engagement to, to fix some of the programs in, in the guns and, and use my experience to be able to, to move some stuff forward. And that's where I'm going to pick it up next time, moving into target engagement. I have to write that down because I'll forget. I appreciate you guys listening to these um, podcasts. I, 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 have no, I have no script. I have no notes. I just pull stuff out of memory and there's so much stuff I forget but um, it comes back to me when it's triggered by something else I, I you know YouTube have changed some of their standards so I've moved some of the gun stuff over to Rumble uh, if you go to Rumble and you you search Overmatch Overmatch is what we used in, in like when we were building a sniper rifle in, in Force Mod if the enemy can engage at 1200 we want to be able to engage at, at 1500 and that's Overmatch right Overmatch on capabilities so I started an LLC and, and it's called Overmatch and I have some plans with that in the future. So um, that's where you'll get gun content because, you know, it is what it is. YouTube's biggest platform in the world. I don't want to get banned off it because I, I want to put this type of stuff on there and I'll just move the, the other stuff over there until this blows over. All right, guys, thank you so much and I'll see you next time. <laughs>